If you would, join me in Acts 17. We'll press on into Acts 17 here this morning. Acts 17. Printed, we have 1 through 15, but we'll be focusing on uh, 10 through 15, as we did 1 through 10 uh, last week. So let's uh, go to God in prayer before we go to the Word. Our Father, may Your Spirit work in us uh, that we may be engaged in Your Word with all eagerness and diligence, uh, for the Word of Christ is the Word of life. Where else shall we go? Amen. Please stand for the reading of the Word. Acts 17, 1-15. through 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Amen. This is God's word. As we've noted before, this is a history And a a historian is supposed to be unbiased. He's supposed to observe and convey facts. And he's not necessarily supposed to offer value judgments or personal commentary on those facts. And the Bible is a book of history. It's full of history. It is the best history. And yet it never shies away from commentary from value judgments, which is a good thing, because if there's any bias we actually want in history, we want God's bias, God's perspective. I'm not very interested in the opinions of man, but a history that is told by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I would like both facts and commentary. 
And this is what we have here. Uh, we have facts and events told, but we also have an explicit value judgment. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Luke adds, they were more noble. Even without the explicit statement, the structure is clearly conveying the contrast between the Thessalonians and the Bereans. And it's intentionally expressed in the narrative itself. But here Luke expressly comes out and says it. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. Luke then here intends for us to see these two groups in juxtaposition as examples for us. And the emphasis of Acts is how King Jesus is advancing his church through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and, and specifically how it's spreading. Um, and the focus is often the spreading. But here in this story, the clear emphasis is on the receiving. How are we to receive the word of God? So Luke gives us a negative example in the Thessalonians and then a positive one in the Bereans as to what we are to do with the scripture. So we'll first look at the negative in the Thessalonians. And remember from last time uh, I pointed out Paul is consistent, always consistent in his message. He's always preaching the same message, perhaps sometimes in different ways, but it's always the same gospel and it's always based on the same scriptures. And he went into the synagogue in Thessalonica for three weeks. It says he reasoned with them. He reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. And the way he reasoned, it says, is that he explained to them the scriptures, which means to open that which was closed. And he also, it says, proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. And that proving there is laying out of evidence for their consideration. So he's reasoning with them according to the scripture that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. So it is a reasonable thing to present arguments from scripture. I'm hard headed. I'm a Dutchman. If you met some of my family, my uncles, you'd know I come by it honestly. And it takes repeated blows for me to get something through my skull. Something I have to learn over and over again is people are not rational. Because I I always think if I can just show them that this is biblical, they'll understand and they'll change their view. I can just properly convey the truth and they'll listen and they'll understand. But people, including myself, are not rational. I don't think it's a bad approach to be rational. In fact, it's a good approach. It's Paul's approach. But it's the expectation, I think, that's amiss here is that we expect people to just change their view because something's rational. So we should reason from the scriptures, explaining, proving. But we must remember that spiritual truth is spiritually discerned, ultimately. In verse 5, the Thessalonian Jews did not come up with um, sound scriptural counter-arguments for Paul's arguments, why Jesus might not be the Christ. Instead, they had an emotional response. It says they were jealous. They were jealous, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees were jealous of Jesus, who when he raised a man from the dead instead of believing, said we need to get rid of this guy. You can see the blindness, the irrationality. 
So rather than reason with Paul in love and show him his error because really they can't refute him and because they are invested more in their own social standing and wealth than they are the truth, they stir up street rabble into a mob and Paul and Silas have to be snuck out of town at night in Thessalonica. Then also in verse 13, these Jews from Thessalonica are so worked up into this jealous froth that they travel 50 miles from Thessalonica to Berea by foot. That's probably two, three days travel by foot. Um, so, uh, And they, they make that journey to try to stop Paul and Silas from preaching there in Berea as well. Um, so we can say what, they, what we will about their intentions, but you have to give it to them that they have zeal about their beliefs. They're, they're zealous to uphold the idols of their own hearts. And I think that's our natural inclination as well. We are zealous to uphold the, the idols of our own hearts. We can be so zealous for so many things and so tepid for the word of God. So why is it people can sit for hours watching Netflix or watching sports, but we struggle maybe to sit through an hour or two of church on Sunday mornings? Or how come we can pop into social media for just a quick check and find ourselves still scrolling 20, 30 minutes later? Right. But it's hard to, to pray for 20, 30 minutes. We can spend hours analyzing and dissecting the latest news story, but analyzing and dissecting a passage of Scripture feels laborious to us. Why is it that we can learn vocabulary and jargon for our work and for our hobbies, but when it comes to spiritual things, we make excuses about our own intelligence or our own Uh, ability to reason and for some reason we treat spiritual things with a different standard of learning than all the other things that we do so in other words we are good at excuses and preserving our own idols we are zealous for our own idols of our own hearts when my dad was pastoring uh, my mom checked in one Sunday with a lady who had missed church on a Sunday and her, her response was well I didn't have my shoes on Another time, she asked another lady, and and her response was, well, you didn't help me move my desk. She said, did you ask me to move your desk? No. (laughs) So maybe we're not good at excuses. Maybe we're bad at excuses. The point is, we may not have the same violent emotional response that the Jews did, but we can and do have an emotional response to the reasoned arguments of Scripture In our current context, it seems to be more apathy than violence, primarily. Whatever it is, we try to rationalize it. But deep down, we know better. We know we're making excuses. We know we're not coming up with thoughtful, rational, scriptural arguments that would actually withstand serious biblical scrutiny. Now, my point here is not to guilt you or to guilt me, although I can feel the prick of conscience when I talk about these things myself. But I do want to resist the temptation for me to only point outward and to say, look at the world and look, look at how bad the evangelical American church is doing at this. We need to look at inward first. We, judgment begins in the household of God. So as we look at the negative example of the Thessalonians, we should take a moment to look inward and to check ourselves. 
Where do we zealously cling to idols of our own hearts rather than seeking scriptural reason to, to lay down the foundation of our lives? We're going to go on to look at the positive example, but first I want to pause um, and I want to emphasize this point that the scripture has real value as God's gift to us, as God's breathed out word to us, as, as a foundation of our faith. Because I think as a reaction to the, the apathy that I just spoke about that we see all around us, it's all too easy to dip and to swing the other way into pietism. Where, where the spiritual disciplines of prayer, reading the Bible, become somehow the foundation of our assurance before God. I have people write into me regularly at, at work and they're concerned because I'm struggling to stop, to put my phone down and to read the Bible before bed. And I'm wondering whether I'm a Christian or not. Now, it's just maybe an issue that you're having that trouble, but to doubt your salvation based on your own performance in the spiritual disciplines is a much more serious issue. So I have to tell them the Bible does not actually prescribe a certain number of hours or a program we must follow to be a Christian. Rather, the idea and the hope is, over the course of our Christian lives, as we mature in Christ, we will grow to depend less and less on our idolatrous crutches and more and more in the delight of God's Word. Because we have actually personally found Him to be more precious, more enjoyable, and more satisfying than our idols, because as we grow in Christ's likeness, the things of earth grow strangely dim. So it is true, coming to God's word, whether it's at church or privately, is a duty. We should do it even when we don't feel it. However, it's more than mere duty. Like a baby who needs milk to survive, but he also comes to his mother for the love of milk and for comfort and security. The Bible is our source of sustenance. We must partake of it, but it is also sweet, and it is our means of coming to Christ for closeness and for comfort and for peace. So Thessalonica was perhaps one of the most resistant cities on Paul's uh, missionary tour, and yet the Word of God still had a powerful impact there. Despite opposition, there was a church planted in Thessalonica. And Paul remarks about the power of the preached word in his, his epistle to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, or 1, 4 and 5. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. That's how the word came to them, in power and spirit with full conviction. And also 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So against the odds, a rebellious, recalcitrant, City, some people there accepted the word of God, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, as the word of God. 
And why did they accept it? Why did they listen? Because the word came to them in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, is that statement with power, the Holy Spirit and full conviction, is that an explanation of how it was preached? Like really, like Paul and Silas had some unction that day. Or is it a matter of how they listened? Well, Paul and Silas always preached that way. But certain people listen. So this is a description of how they listen. Empower the Holy Spirit and conviction. The reason these people believed the word is not because they were smarter, better able to reason. They received the word because the things of God are spiritually discerned and the spirit came upon them in power and full conviction. Sometimes I get the, the sense, the feeling like, I wish the Holy Spirit would come on me in power and full conviction. But pause for a moment and think, do you believe the scriptures are the word of God? Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Then the Spirit has come upon you in power and the Holy Spirit in full conviction. It's happened already. Now, that does not mean that we will somehow henceforth enter the, the third heaven and, and hear a chorus of angels every time we sit down for our devotions, right? What it means is that we have the we, we, we have been the object of the miracle of regeneration. And, and now that we have spiritual life, we're quickened to be able to apprehend the things of God, but it's still going to be progressive and it's still going to be work. I think if there's one thing, and there are many things, if there's one thing that stands out in my mind as something that our dear brother Stanley taught us, is that we need to mine the flinty rock of the, the, the Word of God. We need to mine the Word of God for the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it's going to be hard work, like a miner deep in the earth chipping away at rocks. But the Bible is rich ore. There's gold nuggets and gemstones with every swing in the Bible. And because the Bible leads us to Christ, and in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid. So my point in pausing here between our looking at the Thessalonians and the Bereans is to say the Word of God is actually precious to us. It's filled with riches beyond compare in this world, and that sounds trite because we say that all the time, but we need to be reminded again and again because who among us actually lives moment by moment as if the Word of God is more of a treasure mine than our work or our relationships, our friendships, our hobbies, our interests. So if you will put in the sweat to engage with the word of God, you'll be rewarded ten and a hundredfold for your efforts. Actually, my analogy is, is falls short. Psalm 12.6 says, The word of the Lord are pure words. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace, on the ground, purified seven times. So as you mine the, the flinty rock, it's actually more like mining pure 
ore without any garbage in there, just pure, raw, refined ore. That is the Bible. The Bereans uh, positively exemplify this truth for us. In verse 11, Luke says the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why were they more noble? What earned them this commendation? The Berean Jews were willing to listen to the scriptures. More willing than the Thessalonian Jews. And there's actually, in the Greek, there's actually a causal connection in the grammar here. We can paraphrase, and it's it's really the Bereans were more noble because they received the word. I heard somebody make a point. I was listening to something on a different topic, but I, I hadn't quite thought of it this way. And they mentioned that Luke may have been an apologist or an evangelist to uh, the upper class, to the wealthy. Remember, Luke and Acts are addressed to, oh, excellent Theophilus. And it's interesting, you go through Luke and you notice how many times Luke comments on how the upper class responds to the gospel, whether negatively or positively. So I thought that was an interesting point. But it's almost here as if Luke is saying, actually, Theophilus, true nobility is found not in your earthly status, but in your willingness to receive the word. You want to be in the upper crust of God's economy. You want to uh, enjoy divine wealth. Invest in the word which the Bereans did, it says, with eagerness. With eagerness, they received the word. The word eagerness, we, we were at Kelly's family reunion a few weeks ago, and uh, there was a pack of strawberries on the picnic table. And we were talking with Kelly's cousins, and Levi was noticing the strawberries and climbing on the table and grabbing strawberries and coming back. When he come back all red and juicy, he was literally dancing for joy over the strawberry. This is a picture, I think, of eager reception. Reception marked by joy, by a sense of urgency, by a sense of, I want more of that. Give me another strawberry. That's eagerness. Eagerness also is, is not a question of personality. Some of us have less enthusiastic personalities or expressive personalities. We're not inclined to dance when we're happy, and you can be thankful. I'm not one, one such person. But that's okay. Do we pursue the Word? Like, like we want what it has to offer. Like a, a, a wildcat... <laughs> Is all business, but he's zealous, he's eager to approach that antelope, to pursue that antelope. Are we eager for the word of God? Some translations translate the word uh, more noble as open-minded. It's an interesting word, open-minded. The Thessalonians complain this group of missionaries is turning the world upside down. And to be willing to consider Christianity is to be willing to, cons- to to turn your own world upside down. But the the Bereans were open-minded in the sense that they were willing to consider truth claims that they hadn't before considered and, and that were presented to them. 
and to prioritize truth above comfort because this truth, if adopted, will change their world. It will turn their world upside down. So they were willing to consider it, to think about it. On the other hand, we could say that actually they were somewhat close-minded and skeptical. They didn't believe these words merely um, catching kind of the next wave of doctrine. Uh, Craig Keener says Berea was actually the center of the um, imperial cult. So maybe they were just they rode the cult wave for a while and then they jumped on the Judaism train for a while. And now here comes Christianity. Let's jump on that. Let's jump on that wave. Um, but no, or, or neither was it enthusiasm over here's famous Pharisee Paul, student of Gamaliel here in our synagogue. Let's listen to him. Let's listen to his credentials. Tribe of Benjamin, blameless according to the law. In his report of Jesus as the Messiah, um, the, the Bereans are wondering, is this biblical? That's all they're wondering. Is this scriptural? Is what Paul and Silas are trying to say to us the word of God? Is it consistent with the scriptures? And in that way, they're actually very closed minded. They're not willing to entertain just any option that comes their way. Now, likely few, if anybody in this time, had personal copies of the scriptures at home. So you can imagine, and again, this is another picture of eagerness. These men and women gathered in the synagogue around scrolls together. It says every day they were analyzing the scriptures. What, what do you make of this? Do you, do you remember what Paul said about Jesus? Isaiah 53, uh, son of David. Like, how, do you, how do you make sense of this? Perhaps they were even arguing and debating and, and just working it out, solving the problem. But they were invested in what does the scripture say? And the fruit of their labors by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, is that many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Many of them, therefore, believed. Uh, most people are actually theists, both now and down through history. People have been theists. They believe in God. And it is a foolish suppression of the truth and unrighteousness not to believe in a deity. But there's little value in being a bare theist. Uh, not a bare theist, although that as well, but a bare theist. But we want to ask, who is this Theos? Who is this deity? Who is this God? What is he like? What does he require of us? How do we be reconciled to him? We, we must not just merely believe in God. We must believe God. For Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We cannot believe God if we don't know what God has said. We can't observe, we, we can observe God's handiwork in creation and believe in, in God in a deity. But in order to believe God, we must know his promises. We must know his commandments, his character, his plan of redemption through the cross. We must have the scriptures. The scriptures are necessary. That's why Paul said again in First Thessalonians, when you receive the word of God, 
which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So do we live like that? Do we live like the Bible is the word of God, the breathed out word of God? Do we approach preaching and the, and the reading of God's word with eagerness and diligence? Willing to put in the effort, excitement, enthusiasm over what the scriptures might convey to us, that there are treasures to be had here, that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ and in his word. I'll close with uh, Spurgeon. I'll give him the last word today from a portion of a work of his called The Greatest Fight in the World. He says, we need nothing more than God has seen fit to reveal. Certain errand spirits are never at home till they are abroad. They crave for a something which I think they will never find, either in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth, so long as they are in their present mind. They never rest, for they will have nothing to do with an infallible revelation. And hence they are doomed to wander throughout time and eternity and find no abiding city. For the moment they glory as if they were satisfied with their new toy. But in a few months it is sport to them to break in pieces all the notions which they had formerly prepared with care and paraded with delight. They go up a hill only to come down again. Indeed, they say that the pursuit of truth is better than truth itself. They like fishing better than the fish which may very well be true since their fish are very small and full of bones. (laughs) These men are as great at destroying their own theories as certain paupers are at tearing up their clothes. They begin again de novo, times without number. Their house is always having its foundation dug out. They should be good at beginnings, for they have always been beginnings since we have known them. They are as the rolling thing before the whirlwind, or like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Although their cloud is not that cloud which betokened the divine presence, yet it is always moving before them, and their tents are scarcely pitched before it is time for the stakes to be pulled up again. These men are not even seeking certainty. Their heaven lies in shunning all fixed truth and following every will-o'-the-wisp of speculation. They are ever learning, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. As for us, we cast our anchor in the haven of God's word. Here's our peace, our strength, our life, our motive, our hope, our happiness. God's word is our ultimatum. Here we have it. Our understanding cries, I have found it. Our conscience asserts that there is the here is the truth, and our heart finds here support to which all her affections can cling, and hence we can rest content. Amen.